Amen. Please be seated. This is tremendous. It's 1040 right now. That means I've got till noon. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. Praise the Lord. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. We are working through this great high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. The whole chapter, John 17, is not just a prayer. It's the prayer of Jesus prayed shortly before his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion. There are three sections to this prayer. We've uh, worked through the first, which was Jesus' prayer for the glory of God uh, for himself in these last days before he would go to the cross and then ascend. The, the second section is larger, and we're in the second part of it, and that's Jesus' prayer for his disciples who were still there. And the Holy Spirit had not yet come, not descended upon them at the day of Pentecost yet, and so he's praying for his disciples there. But much of what he says can clearly be applied to any disciple of any age, learners, followers of Christ. Then the last section, which we'll study next week, that's specifically for those who would come to Christ through the ministry of the disciples who became apostles, us. That's for us in particular. But of course, all of this is for us and for us to learn from and study. And so that's what we are doing. And I want to start with verse 14 as I read John 17, 14 through verse 19. Please follow as I read God's holy word. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. Father, you have indeed given us your word. We are so grateful. As we look at a decaying culture, we recognize it is relative to the putting away of your word that we have seen this decay. And Lord, you've given us opportunity to study your eternal word that never fades. And to apply it to our lives, we need your spirit. We pray for your spirit's ministry. We pray that we would be changed and that you would, in these dark days, use your church to shine a light and turn the tide. I pray that every one of us would be moved and convicted by your spirit concerning your word and also encouraged by the fact that you have revealed truth to us. We so desperately need truth and you have given it to us. It is your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I do my best to keep up our lawn. But it's not been a great effort, not a, not a great result. The effort's been great, but the result has not been. When we moved to our first house and we came here to the Kansas City area, the person we bought the house from had a lawn care business. And he had nuked the lawn so good that there was nothing left of weeds and it was, it was like a carpet. It was so, I didn't have to do a thing to it for the three years we lived in that house. It looked beautiful. So when we bought our bigger house, we bought it in December, and so the grass was kind of dormant, and I didn't know how bad it was. Now, I'm not saying I wouldn't have bought it if I didn't know, but at any rate, when it spring sprang, everyone else's lawns looked great, and we had these craters in the middle of it. And I mean, you could lose a small child in some of the cracks that opened up in the middle of the summer. And so I threw seed on it, trying to, trying to get it to grow, and well, it, it never grew. Not like that, not that time of the year. Because you, you can put seed on your lawn, but if you put it at the wrong time, and there's, it's lacking the right ingredients, 
you won't have a result. So this year, planning ahead, I've already overseeded my lawn, gone to those areas that have uh, dirt exposed and worked the seed into those areas because what it takes to germinate a seed is a couple things. The seed itself, of course, but you have to have moisture and you have to have heat. Now, long term, it's got to be in good dirt and there's other things that go into play, no doubt. Fertilizer, uh, the right light exposure. There are many things that are important, but to get it to germinate, to start growing, to start to grow with any sustenance, it has to have moisture and heat. So if you put a seed down on a piece of dirt and there's no moisture like I did in the middle of July, it won't grow. It'll blow away most likely or a bird will eat it. Uh, the same way is that if you put the seed down in, it's moist and it's wet, the snow just melts, but it's still really cold, it won't germinate either. Brothers and sisters, I don't think anyone here, you didn't get up Sunday morning to come here without the desire at some level to grow spiritually. You want to grow. Hopefully you know Christ personally as your Savior, but you want to grow. Now, if you just came thinking come coming to church once a week, that alone will make you grow. I hope it helps. But recognize there are things that have to come together for us to grow by God's plan. So just as a seed needs warmth and needs uh, moisture, you as a believer, you need two things in particular. There are many things that are important, but two things in particular. You need the Word of God in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, or you won't grow. Period. I can give you all sorts of wise things that may keep you on the edge of your seat. Well, maybe I could. But if I could, I would, and you'd sit there, and you wouldn't grow an ounce if it wasn't the Word of God and the Holy Spirit's ministry was not working in that. You may come back next week to hear quippy statements or five ways and to do this or to do that, but if it's not the Word of God and the Spirit of God is not applying that Word, we cannot grow. And this is what Jesus prays for the church, that God would sanctify them. Sanctify is a big word for growing spiritually. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So he's asking God to do something which implies an agency outside the thing itself, the word, and the word. So we need the word and we need God's work for us to grow. You can't grow any other way. If you're trying some other way, you already know it's not working. It only works in conjunction to the word of God and the spirit of God working through it. Pink says this about the word of God, and I have it there on your outline the written word is unadulterated truth because its author cannot lie. In it there is no error because the word of God is God's truth. It is of final authority. By it everything is to be tested. By it our thoughts are to be formed and our conduct is to be regulated. Just because God's word is truth, it sanctifies those who obey it. Let's look at this portion of this great prayer, starting in verse 17. Jesus praying for us to be sanctified. He wants us to grow spiritually by the word of God. Verse 17 says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, to sanctify very simply means to set apart something. Okay, It means to make it holy or, or distinct. It means to purify it. Scripture uses the word often to describe the, the process of eradicating sin and sinful practice from our lives. 
But at the same time, Scripture never just uses this word sanctification to imply that Christians rid themselves of sin completely in this world. It doesn't say that either. It's, it's an ongoing process that God works. There's a beautiful picture of what would happen as the Holy Spirit came upon the people of God, as Jesus sent the Spirit and the Father sent the Spirit and, and works in us with the Word. And it happens in Ezekiel, way before the time of Christ, and he looks ahead to this time, and listen to what Ezekiel says, and notice how you have the Word, and you have the Word, the Spirit of God, and you have this process of sanctifying us. Already looked ahead to, in Ezekiel 36, 25 and following, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from your idols, I will cleanse you. There's a sense of conversion there where God sets us apart for himself. But then listen to what Ezekiel forecasts. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart uh, from, your, uh, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the Word and the Spirit together is the act of God for the people of God. It's His plan. It's what He's designed. Not just for you to become a Christian and say, now I'm safe from hell. No, it's to become a Christian as an act that He performs, and then a work that He continues is sanctifying you, helping you to grow spiritually, help you to mature spiritually, to be formed spiritually. That's what Christ is praying for, and that's what God's will is for every one of us who are in Him. I love how our shorter catechism that we teach our kids, but good for any, all of us to learn, distinguishes between these things. Justification is, is an act of God's free grace where he pardons us from our sins, accepts us as righteous. Then we're adopted. It's all simultaneous. We're adopted. That relational component of being born again, being saved, as it were, that's an act of God's free grace again where he, we are received into the number and we receive all the rights and privileges of sons and daughters. That's, that's a one-time act. But notice what it says about sanctification. Sanctification is the work, not the act, the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live under righteousness. So sanctification is just a big word for spiritual growth, for you growing spiritually, and that's God's will for us. Now, I want to be clear. This is where we get frustrated your road is different than the person you're sitting next to as far as the road of sanctification God has ordered for you. And that can be frustrating if you're always comparing yourself to someone else. But God has you right where he wants you and is working situations in your life to sanctify you. And they may not all be pleasant. In fact, many of them aren't. Richard Baxter, a great pastor, once said that suffering so unbolts the heart that the word has easier entrance. So often he uses trials to open us up to be changed by the word. So he'll use hard knocks, he'll use challenges, he'll use trials, but he'll also use undeniable providential blessings that he will pour out on us at times. He'll give us joys that we would not experience in other ways. He'll give us all sorts of experiences that we go through as a means to open us up to his word. And the Spirit works this in our lives by God's providence so that we become more dependent upon him and that our sin is confronted at just the right time. Praise God is never all at once, but he takes portions and parts of our lives and shows them to us and where you are and where your neighbor is may be at different places but make no mistake he's working sanctification in you and his people because that's part of why jesus came is to purify us not just to save us from hell but to clean us to purify us so that he can have a greater effect in the world which we'll see being the outcome of this in a moment philippians 2 13 paul says for it is god 
who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Is Jesus praying for our spiritual growth? And it's the same thing Paul gave a benediction concerning to the Thessalonians when he said, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. That's what sanctification means. What is the place of the word of God in our sanctification? Look at verse 17. It's important to see the wording. Sanctification, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Uh, very simply, what is the word of God? There's confusion about this in our day. Look at the context first, and then we'll, we'll expand to understand what Jesus has in view. Back at verse 6 of John 17, Jesus says, I have manifested your name. So there's the, there's the revealing of God's name. That, that's his word in that sense to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So the revelation of God's will to us is the word. Verse 7 of John 17, Now they know that everything that you have given me, so it's been given to Christ, and he gives it to us, the word of God. It's from you, says in verse 7. Verse 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So the word of God is just that. It's God's words through Christ. But there's more to be understood. Verse 14 of John 17, where we have begun our study, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. There's a reference here to Jesus giving them a word that comes from another world. That is, God's kingdom come to us. But recognize in Jesus' ministry, and we don't have time to peruse that now, he does several important things to give us definition to what the Word of God is. It's not just the words he spoke here. Jesus confirms that the testimony of, the, of Moses and the prophets and the writers of the Psalms, all throughout Jesus gives testimony that that's the Word of God. So he confirms the Old Testament that the church had at that time to be the Word of God. He confirms that the words he's speaking are God's words. God gave them to him, he's speaking them to us. And then he gives the Spirit to allow his apostles to record his word in the gospel messages themselves, and then gives them special, uh, special power to write the word, sanction the word to be written, and that gives us our New Testament epistles. These books are all books written by or commissioned by the apostles, so it's prophetic in its writing, and Jesus confirms and empowers this. This is what gives us the Word of God that we say is contained in the 66 books, we say it because it's revealed by itself to be the Word of God. It's testable. We can see that it is. Notice what he says in verse 6, I have manifested your name. Then in verse 8, for I have given them the word that you gave me. Verse 14, I have given them your word. The Word of God is the testimony of God through the prophets and the apostles with the chief prophet being Christ himself. The Old Testament God commissioned the prophets to speak by the Holy Spirit. So we have the Old Testament books. The New Testament, Jesus confirms the Old Testament books, then speaks the Word of God, and has his apostles, the prophets of the New Testament era, record God's words as well. Jesus sends his Spirit to safeguard their testimony against error. He commissions his apostles to write, teach, live out the Word of God. And this is the essence of what Paul reminds the pastor Timothy when he says, all Scripture, Timothy, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Let me be clear. To say that the Bible is inspired by God 
doesn't mean that it's inspiring, like it makes us do something because it inspires us by its story. To be inspired by God means it's breathed out by God. It's, it's God's will revealed, word for word. That's what it means to be inspired or God-breathed. Sanctify them in the truth. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It is not accurate to say that the Bible contains the word of God or the Bible contains truth or that truth is in the Bible. I remember when I first heard this taught, I was in Chicago and I went to a church, an historic church downtown because they had a particular choir singing a particular musical piece by a composer that I liked. And so the choir was singing and the pastor got up and said, as he opened up the Bible, listen for the word of God. What does he mean? Is he reads, does that mean that some of it may not be? That's exactly what he meant. But what he meant is wrong. Because Christ said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The Bible is truth. Not, does it, it doesn't contain truth. It is truth. Big difference in how that's lived out in your life. Because who's to determine what is or what isn't? I'll go with Jesus' testimony and the prophets himself and the apostles. Our confession that we read earlier in the first chapter about the Bible, read that when you have a chance. It's one of the most powerful statements the church has ever produced on what the Bible teaches. But the fourth section that we didn't get to, because we'd still be reading if we started that by then, the fourth section says the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not on the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth himself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. It's authoritative because it's God's word. The second question in our catechism, the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. It's sufficient because it's God's truth. Now think of how practical this is. Well, the state of California says, hold on, what does the word of God say? The Department of Education says, well, hold on, my textbook says, uh, my college professor says, Carl Sagan said, Richard Dawkins now says, a study of the University of California, Berkeley, has shown. All these Hollywood stars are saying, but Mohammed said, Buddha said, or the Dalai Lama said, CNN said, Fox said. The psychologist will tell you, Dr. Phil says, the Supreme Court has ruled. Well, guess what? Eve said, the serpent said. What does the word of God say? That's what's important. That's what will pass to the next generation. Not the sorry wisdom that is passed off when it's not even wisdom itself that we see. Paul identifies this by the Holy Spirit, describing the culture, saying, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's happening in mass in culture today. Isaiah said, in the midst of a similar culture, similar situation, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Church, be excited. We have the word of God. The Word of God is what will change everything. How does the Word of God work in our sanctification? A very important question as we read this prayer of Jesus. Since it's the Word of God, written by the one who made you, it's like an instruction manual. 
I used to play with Legos in a free form where I just pick them up and make whatever I want. And I still do that to this day, by the way, on a regular basis. Every once in a while, though, my kids will get a gift from a friend that's this really elaborate Lego ship or Lego like mining operating kind of boat thing, whatever it may be. And it comes with this booklet of directions. You know what I'm talking about? If you don't, you have not lived life yet. I don't know what to tell you. But in these booklets, if you look at it, there may be a hundred pieces. And, you know, some of you engineer types may think you can start. And I guarantee even the best engineer among you could start and try to match that picture. You will never do it. But when you read the manual, even someone like me, I can figure it out and get it pretty close. Okay. Don't approach life with the perspective that you can put all the pieces together and it'll turn out looking okay. When you've been given instructions that if you follow them, even when it seems, oh, that doesn't make exact sense. I don't know why. Trust it. It's been here longer than you and it comes from wisdom that is eternal. So it will work out even when there are awkward moments when culture says, that's not how you do that. You should turn it this way or your, your own mind will tell you, I don't think you should follow it and see if it fails you. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. Meaning that we've been given a message from heaven that will not look exactly like fallen man will devise things. And so there will be a hatred unleashed upon those who follow this. But notice the will of God for this, just as I am not in the world. That's what happened to Christ. Verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Make them grow in truth. And do so by the word. Your word is truth. Verse 18, as you've sent me to the world, so I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. But the word of God works in our life by revealing truth. And it always has to have the, the attendance of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. We won't understand it without the Spirit of God giving us eyes to see it. It's, it's the chief tool he uses to sanctify us. Now, there are others. The word reveals to us that God has given us the sacraments, and those are very powerful, visible representations of the word. I don't want to demean them in any way because we need them in our life for growth. Uh, But the word gives us revelation about them. We wouldn't know of them if it weren't for the word. So we have to start at that point and recognize how essential the word is for us to grow. So when he asks God to sanctify us in the truth, he means the word of God working together with the spirit of God. And notice the language in the truth. Verse 17. They also may be sanctified in the truth. It means to to dip them in the truth, to immerse them in the truth, to be covered with the word. We have to have exposure to the word of God to be affected by it. To grow, we must be in contact with the word of God. And we can have contact in many ways in which you are already doing. By reading the word of God, meditating on it, by listening and sitting under teaching concerning the word of God, by preaching the preaching of the Word of God, by singing the Word of God, by memorizing the Word of God. But like a seed needs both water and warmth, we need the Word and the Spirit for growth. That's something that's implied in John 17 because he's asking God to do it. But listen to what Paul says to the Thessalonians that really describes this this connection between the Spirit of God and the Word of God working in the life of the believer. Listen to what it says. Hopefully this is descriptive of, of us. For we know, brothers... Loved by God, that he has chosen you. Paul loves this congregation. Because our gospel, that's the word of God, came to you not only in word, we didn't just speak it, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So they spoke it, they lived it out in front of them, but when they spoke it, it came attended by the Spirit, and the Spirit gave it its effect. That's what he says when he says, it came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. 
because the Spirit of God testified to the truth of the Word of God, that's what God used to have that effect in the lives of the believers. I love the verse, I think it's the third verse of Shout for the Blessed Jesus Reigns, where it says, Oh, may His holy church increase. I think we've even used it as our closing hymn. His Word and Spirit still prevail, while angels celebrate His praise and saints His growing glories hail. Later, in the second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul said, We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. The Spirit and truth go hand in hand. Well, how does our sanctification that Jesus is praying for relate to the world that you and I live in? What connection is there for us? Well, verse 16 says, speaking of us, the disciples, the disciples there in particular, and us by extension, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And look what it says, because this gives us our cue. As you sent me into the world, Jesus says to God the Father, so I've sent them into the world. So we being sent into the world is similar to Jesus being sent to us. That's an important model for us to consider. And the reason why this is an important model is because our relationship with the world is not simple. Christians have been debating this for a long time. What is our relationship to the world we're in? We're not of it. I mean, we're not worldlings in one sense, but yet we're, here we are all around us. People we love don't know you. They're, they're part of the world. What's our relationship? Well, some have tried to describe this relationship or simplify it by saying we should withdraw. You know, that's the monastic movement that started with monks going and living somewhere in a monastery to be withdrawn from the dirtiness of the world and its, its people. To do things that might get sent out into the world, some kind of charity or whatever, but in the end, separate from the world. And Protestants did the same thing with fundamentalist separatism. Uh, we're going to separate from the world, and if there's any evil that ever shows up in the congregation, get rid of that person. Get them out, because they're, they're, they're going to mess us up. They're going to make us dirty. Well, I think suffice to say, neither of those work. And because they're not the model that God's given to us in the Scriptures. Some have confused our relationship with the world by becoming too much like the world. That it loses its distinction as the church and it has no effect on the world. In fact, it's so concerned with what the world says that the, the, its message gets watered down to the point of total assimilation. That's evidence in the life of Israel. Remember when we studied Hosea? You become like the world. Can't tell the difference, God says to them. No effect anymore. You are the world. I mean, you're just part of the, the lost sea of fallen humanity now. We've seen that certainly in Israel. But we see it in modern Protestant liberalism as well. It's long ceased to be the church because it cares far more what all those other supposed worldly wisdoms think of it than what God says in his word. Long departed from it. May have churches, may have pastors with the robes on, but it's dying because it's not the model God gives us. The model gives us is the Lord Jesus himself. When it says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. What did Christ do? Well, he certainly didn't separate himself from the world by isolation. He sat down at the table of tax collectors, sinners. He embraced Zacchaeus, who came to him. And in many other stories, that was what he was known for. He certainly wasn't assimilated by the world. He had that company, but he maintained his integrity and was clear in who he was. His effectiveness was his ability to be in the world, yet relate with its inhabitants, without becoming like them, but at the same time having compassion on them for where they were. I'm not telling you that's easy, and I'm telling you that's why you need your church. That's why you need your brothers and sisters in Christ to help you with this so that you're not assimilated, but also to help you to go be that light 
It's a constant balance for us in the church, but God gives us the strength to do so by his word and by his spirit. God is working spiritual growth in his people so that they can have that we can have a similar effect on the world that Jesus had. And Jesus even goes so far as to say, I'm going to go to be with my Father and send you the Holy Spirit, and it will be better when I do so. And it's hard for me to imagine it being better without Jesus there bodily. But he says that by giving his Spirit, he can do through us what he was doing individually in that little place, that little sphere that he had. He can multiply that by this many people and many, many more. And when it's not multiplied, it's always relative to how the church is faithful to the Scriptures. We have proven we can pack churches and we can get people excited. What we have not done so well, especially in this culture, is seeing a level of depth and growth come about. And it's usually because we're too superficial. We believe the word, we give a little bit of the word, and then we just stop because we're afraid we'll overwhelm someone. But if we really want to have generational effect, long, widespread effect, we can only do so as we dig deep into what God has revealed in his word. It's truth. And we need it in all of our lives. With the same passion, each of us have hobbies and jobs and things that interest us. And we spend all sorts of time doing. We should spend much more time with truth because we've got it. That will start to make an impact. And the reason why we're not making an impact at large is because we're not really that serious about it. Just serious enough to be safe in our minds. But how's that been working for us as a church? Not well. I would submit to you that we live in some challenging times that concern me and excite me at the same time. I've never had more conflicting sense of the church's job than I do right now. There's a sense in which years of unbridled consumption and hedonism are beginning to catch up with our culture in a way that's going to be vivid for people very soon, in a way it had not been before. And to the degree that the church is joined in this, there will be difficult days for the church to endure as well. Yet we live in a time of opportunity that may well be unprecedented for the gospel. Because against this backdrop, when the idols fall and everything people have been trusting in so much, only that which really matters and is eternal will be able to show forth. And as to the degree that churches are faithful to the eternal word of God, that's how successful, that's how effective they'll be in turning the culture back to God. But ones that have sold out on God, sold out on his word, they'll be the first to close. They won't be able to sustain themselves. So what exciting times we have coming. Who will be standing I think God's word will stand. So those who are loyal to his, stand, to his word, they'll get to see the great reaping, the harvest that will come of souls for God in a time where we have to see that dependence can only, only be upon him, the eternal one who never fails. Great days of opportunity. Let's not lose what Jesus says is so crucial to our spiritual growth and our job in the world it says in verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. As you grow spiritually, you will unnecessarily have effect on those around you. And same for all of us wherever God places us. So he's doing this work for his glory and for the spreading of his glory through you. And what Jesus prays for will come to pass. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word, for it is truth. I pray that you encourage my brothers and sisters. We live in just difficult times to interpret. Lord, whatever you have, I pray that we would remain steadfast and immovable. That we recognize your word is truth. Minister it in love, with compassion, but without compromise. 
And I pray, Lord, that you bring many, many, many men, women, and children to faith in Christ. When, when the idols fall, when the false sense of security is no longer there, help us again as a nation, churches, to turn to you. Lord, do this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.